0: This is a Romy cast. This podcast was recorded in October of twenty twenty one.
1: Two, three, four. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? When I, uh, I play the bass, I play a guitar and I too play dead? sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. <laughs> oh, hey, Can we you? just have a little
0: less guitar in here,
1: Oh, that's a Mr. John finally got just after that, and we both of to do what we wanted, to do. do what we want to do. It's not bad that one. Keep that one. Market Fab.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. We will be taking a stroll along the cast iron shore and peeling off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest discussing their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. The podcast website is romycast.com That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T romycast.com And if you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done in this series so far. This is the seventh episode of series two of i've got that right six seven yep seventh episode of series two you can find the first six episodes of the series as well as all 15 episodes of series one and also very importantly if you see fit could you please make a donation to support keeping the show commercial free any donation much appreciated and your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of the show, hosting, advertising. Uh, it's a labor of love for me. Most people don't donate, just a teeny tiny single-digit percentage of, of all the listeners that I have. Uh, but if you enjoy the show... I ask you to please consider a donation to support it. Maybe just a couple of dollars per episode. It's not that much. Just click on the donate button on the website if you'd like to help out. And along those lines, a big shout out to Jeff Long, who made a donation last week. Thanks for your support, Jeff. Much appreciated. If you'd like to make a donation, I'll give you a shout out as well. Just visit the website, romicast.com. Also, if you don't already, please subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, leave a positive review or rating if you can. That kind of thing really does help. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle... Romanuk Paul, that is Romanuk Paul, my name spelled backwards, Uh, also the best way to get in touch or comment on any of the episodes. My guest today is Canadian songwriter and musician Alan Piggins. Alan was the lead singer and lead guitar player in a much-loved grunge band from the early 90s on the Canadian music scene called The Morgan Fields. They released three solid records, Scribblehead, thrash waltz, and joy. The band faded and Alan then found work as a recording engineer and eventually he started releasing solo material. As this is recorded, he's getting set to release his fourth solo record, Impermanence. You can find out loads about Alan, his new record, his other solo records, and his career in music at his website, alanpiggins.com. Alan is spelled A-L-U-N- Piggins, A L U N Piggins.com. You can also look for him on Bandcamp, where you can listen to and purchase all of his solo work, much of which bears a definite Beatles influence. You will hear that for sure. So, Alan, musician, songwriter, producer, engineer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles.
1: Oh, well, it's great to be here. I'm, unfortunately, I couldn't uh, couldn't make it to your place today. The uh, the uh, child decided to bring a virus home from school. It's not COVID, though. <laughs> not, not COVID.
0: So we can count that as a blessing. And the studios <laughs> at the uh, the Walrus was Paul Global headquarters will remain uh, vacant on this evening, and we'll we'll do it here virtually. Yeah. But the, that I'll send the staff home, so we won't worry about that. I love it when I get a chance to quote the guests. And I'm going to quote you right here and get you to answer the question. So here's a quote. I was formed in the early autumn of 1966 in the then sleepy southern Ontario town of Guelph. I am the youngest of three boys. My parents had relocated from the UK the year before. My first musical memories were of my mom and I sitting on the green couch at 4 Heather Avenue when I was three or four, listening to Revolver. Pepper, the soundtrack of help, Bob Dylan's greatest hits, Volume One, and Jefferson Airplane's Surrealistic Pillow. As best you can, take us to that room, on that couch, sitting on that knee.
1: Yeah, well, it was. I. It was, um, I, um, it, it was uh, my my very first sort of musical introduction. Uh, my mother was. Uh, you know probably quite shocked to have gone from suburban London England to suddenly she's in southern Ontario uh, and so I think part of part of um, sort of Quelling the homesickness was was listening to the the Beatles. That I mean, she listened to them all of the time. Um, I, I I think uh, I I remember singing along with her to Yellow Submarine. Uh, I also I, I remember getting. I don't know if you got one of these when you were a kid, but I got one of those corgi toy Yellow Submarines. Absolutely, where you pushed it along, and the different Beatles popped up. Hello. <laughs> I think, (laughs) for some reason, I um, thought it would be really interesting at that age to bury it in the backyard, and I never found it again. (laughs) Well,
0: well, I don't Um, know if you remember, I had, there was all kinds of yellow submarine stuff, but I had, it was like a giant... Key fob, and you could get four of them, one for each Beetle, and it was yeah. it was like it, it was fairly big and it was flat, and I took Paul's and stuck it on my bedroom door because of course it said Paul yeah. on it, it yeah. said, that, that's my memory of Yellow Submarine.
1: Oh, for, for absolutely, I, I, I'm not sure if it was the same for you, but when when I was young, it was all about Paul and then when i got when i hit puberty it became all about john <laughs> i don't um i think just sort of the hormones kicking in uh but to to go back to to four heather it, it ended up becoming uh my mother died the year after that so i it ended up becoming uh the the beatles ended up becoming sort of i would listen to them and, and listen to that memory and that was sort of a very fond uh, memory of her, and I sort of found that the Beatles sort of transported me, kind of back to the days before she died, I suppose.
0: So it's it's a long time she's been gone now, then. But do you still, when you hear certain Beatles songs, is it impossible not to think of her?
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, and then and then later on, of course. I mean, it's it's the 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 most probably the. One of the most beautiful things about music is putting records on and they actually transport you back to where you were so for example, when I'm eight or not when I whenever I hear band on the run because my brother and my dad were really into band on the run i, I I'm transported to nineteen seventy five Guelph Ontario on that same that same couch uh, <laughs> Later on, I suppose, the Stranglers. <laughs> That's a whole other story. That. And, and then you
0: became a rock star many years later. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, uh, and speaking of being a rock star, so you're on the verge of releasing a new record, Impermanence, and it's due out in early uh, 2022. Uh, a bit of a fragment on your website, and you also were kind enough to send me a song called Watson Road, uh, yeah. which I gave gave a listen to a few times. Very guitar-driven.
1: And,
0: and I'm wondering, is that a, a taster of what the record's going to sound like?
1: Yeah, it's um very much uh I I, I think over uh, you know the last couple of years like well during the pandemic I I I I think I put it on the my website I I taught myself how to drum and I ended up just spending after being laid off I spent a lot of time just sort of figuring out what I, what music I wanted to make and there's a few different there's a few different projects on the go, but the first one is going to be uh, impermanence, and it, it's it it came out of uh, going through kind of again throwing on revolver, was <laughs> a big part of it, but also uh, big star, uh, radio uh, radio number one. That was uh, no, that that ended up becoming, I suppose, in some ways, sort of a soundtrack in my head when I was starting to work on. On on this, and I ended up writing a lot of songs that would fit. It it became a project and a concept, really, of of, um, of, of sort of guitar poppy, some jangly stuff in there. Um, Music to it, it. actually goes back to wealth. It's a it's it's a concept record about growing up in Southern Ontario. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we'll uh, we'll delve into your your drum playing a little bit later on uh, <laughs> in the podcast. But but I, I did want to uh, back in the mists of time, and I alluded to it a, a moment earlier, the early nineties, and a much loved, uh, certainly by me, uh, indie grunge band, for lack of a better description,
1: called the Morgan Fields. <laughs> what happened <laughs> oh well I mean it 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 was basically we as a lot of bands at that time we we decided we'd put out our like a, a Uh, An independent record and just started to tour Canada selling records on the way out of the back of the van at shows a lot of there's a ton of us doing it at the time sleeping on people's couches we had an old Bell Canada van with a sleeping platform in the back everyone had the same design I, I don't know what it came from but we all had the same kind of design with a futon on top of the sleeping platform. And we we basically just spent a few years crisscrossing Canada and playing wherever people would have us, uh, which was pretty interesting. Um, when you weren't exactly what they had in mind, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. But, there's a but, few but, bottles thrown, <laughs>
0: but, but yeah. Oh
1: yes, I can imagine. <laughs>
0: but but how did it? Uh, I mean, uh, how did it end? Why did the Morgan Field stop?
1: I think. Uh, we we had a revolving door of bass players because it was hard to convince people to tour all the time and make no money. <laughs> <laughs> and it was there were also the, like some of the tours we did were just uh, uh, the opening ones were pretty good. Generally, we did a a couple of tours of Canada and the U.S. with the Headstones, um, which was good in in that we got along really well with the Headstones, but their, their fans hated us. So it was, a, there, there wasn't enough positive reinforcement, I suppose. And then once we, we had finished our third record, which uh, I think the record company wanted us to be Canada's Green Day at that point, as opposed to Canada's Nirvana a couple years before. So when we put out a record that was anything but green day and in fact heavily influenced by listening to rubber soul and revolver because i'd gotten back into the the beatles and was attempting to do something a lot more melodic uh I, the, the record company didn't really get it um and so they didn't get behind it i was pushing for singles that should be that were more melodic to be released to radio and they were going nah we got a better idea <laughs> 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 so it crashed. <laughs> so,
0: so to bring us, uh, bring us back to the reason why we're, we're sitting here today uh, is you have chosen as your album to go through uh, The Beatles Live at the BBC. Why is that your pick? I
1: think um, I was absolutely, I still am, I'm absolutely blown away with, by their musicianship. I don't think they're ever given the credit for what great musicians they were, uh, as well as the work ethic. This was a big part Actually, this goes quite um, part and parcel with, with the previous question, is touring around where, where you've gone from playing 3:45-minute sets. Uh, in the early days of the Morgan Fields, or my previous band of that, Celtic Blue, where you're doing three forty-five minute sets, you cover the whole night. To now, you're doing these sort of showcases of forty-five to fifty minutes. I didn't really enjoy that. I, I liked playing the whole night, and. When, you, when I was reading, I can't remember what Beatles book I was reading at the time, but I was reading about the work ethic of, that they had built up, like playing in, um, in, in Hamburg, where they were playing from maybe nine at night till five in the morning. And I, I, I thought, ah, I, want, I, 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 I want that in a band. But I also like, wow, that's a lot of playing. That's a lot of honing your skills. And that's basically why I I picked that record. It, it's, um, you just see them, hear them for what they are. It's all live at the BBC to mono. There's no overdubs, and it's just going to one track. Uh, that's incredibly skilled. And uh,
0: you are not the first musician, nor will you be the last, who, when you talk about this era, they do talk about... What a tight, great-sounding live band they were when they played that way together. And you really do get it in these in these BBC tapes. I just want to give a little bit of context uh, for those of you perhaps not aware. Uh, the BBC, that's the British Broadcasting Corporation, is the federally funded national broadcaster of Britain. It's comparable to the CBC, uh, for you Canadians listening, and it's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, although, and I hasten to add this, there is no comparison. Uh, The BBC for me is the finest English language public broadcaster in the world, known around the world for the high quality of both television and audio programs. The number of iconic bands and musicians that have played sessions for BBC radio or television shows is about as extensive as it gets, and it's not just restricted to British artists. Probably the finest recorded live TV performance by Canada's Gordon Lightfoot was done for a BBC television special back in 1972. You can search it on YouTube. Likewise for Joni Mitchell back in 1970. So as the B pertains to the Beatles... Between March of 1962 and May of 1965, the Beatles played 52 known BBC radio programs, and they gave performances of 88 different songs. The first, recorded on March the 7th, 1962, was for a show called Teenager's Turn, Here We Go, on which they played three songs. Dream Baby, How Long Must I Dream, Memphis, Tennessee, And please, Mr. Postman, Pete Best was still in the group at this time. It was a full seven months before Love Me Do was released as their first single. The show was recorded at the Manchester Playhouse, and it was said to be the first time the Beatles wore suits on stage. The last BBC show was recorded on May the 26th, 1965, and was a special called The Beatles Invite You on a Ticket to Ride. So some, although not all of the appearances, were recorded and kept. Many were recorded over or wiped entirely. The BBC at the time not being aware that this little band would occupy an exalted place in musical history and tape was expensive back then and you used it over again. Some of these recordings were bootlegged as early as 1971. Some higher quality boots appeared in the 1980s. In 1982, the BBC produced a two-hour radio special called The Beatles at the Beeb. And then in 1988, there was a 14-part series, 14 30-minute episodes called The Beeb's Lost Beatles Tapes. By this time... Both the BBC and EMI were well aware that these recordings had some commercial value to them, and there were a few false starts at putting out a proper collection of these recordings. Uh, Beatles historian Mark Lewison wrote that at December 1991, EMI was preparing an album for first time commercial release. Meanwhile, BBC producer Kevin Howlett was busy tracking down the best versions of recordings, and he looked for original session tapes and was also contacted by people who had worked on some of the shows and had copies of the tapes or the shows, and they'd heard what he was up to and wanted to help out. Many of the tracks were cover versions, as we will hear, and uh, also, although there was a chance for overdubbing or fixes, because these performances were recorded and edited for broadcast, most of the tracks were recorded live and in one take the recordings as alan mentioned all mono the tracks for the album that eventually came out were selected by producer george martin and included 30 of the 36 songs in the bbc archive that the group had never recorded for emi The Beatles, Live at the BBC, was released in the UK on November 3rd, 1994 and in the USA and Canada on December the 6th of that same year. It was the Beatles' uh, first release to contain unreleased material since the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl, which came out in 1977. The album topped the UK charts. It was number one for one week and was in the chart for 23 weeks. It was number three on the US Billboard charts and number one on the Canadian RPM charts. As per Chartmasters.org, the album has sold over 6.2 million physical copies and has had more than 152 million streams of tracks. It is the highest selling Beatles live album. With about 4 million more sales than The Beatles Live at the Hollywood Bowl. Now just for some context, looking at the original catalog, The Beatles Live at the BBC has sold more physical copies than Please Please Me, With The Beatles, Beatles For Sale, and Yellow Submarine. So the album contains 56 tracks, and Alan, uh, I got you to whittle it down to 14 for us to delve (laughs) into. That's the normal number of tracks the Beatles put on most of their studio albums. Was it tough to whittle it down to 14 for you?
1: Well, um, I'm going to admit something here. First of all, I didn't know there was a volume two. So that's, I I was, uh, I think I probably would have picked slightly different tunes with volume two, because I absolutely love Please Mr. Postman. Uh, But um, yeah, it was tough. uh, I I was basically, a lot of it was, I I, kind of wanted to show the diversity of the kind of tunes they were playing, as well as how big popular American music was as an influence
0: the first cut uh is too much monkey business.
1: Run into and flow hard working at the mail never fail the mail yet come around me. Too much monkey business. Too much monkey business. Too much monkey business for me to imbibe again. Obviously it's the big Chuck Berry influence on them uh and I absolutely love their version of it. Yeah, you you could have literally picked i think i picked two chuck berry songs right yeah um yeah i did i picked two chuck berry songs but i think chuck was probably the biggest influence on on John Lennon, anyway. Uh, A Chuck
0: Berry cover, absolutely. Uh, Berry first released the song as a single in 1956, entered the Beatles' live repertoire in 1960, and it remained there until they signed to EMI. Um, it, It was Chuck Berry's fifth single in September of 1956 for Chess Records. The Beatles, over the years, recorded four different versions of Too Much Monkey Business for BBC Radio in 1963. This is the fourth one on this album. Oh,
1: okay, yeah. I did. yeah. Uh, I-
0: it was uh, from the 13th edition of their radio show, Pop Go the Beatles, and it opened up the show, uh, recorded on September the 3rd, 1963. Uh, and you're so right. I mean, Lennon seems, he seems to gravitate towards singing the Chuck songs. Yes, very much so. And it does a great job of it. Uh, The show was at uh, Aeolian Hall, which is on New Bond Street in London, where they recorded it. Uh, As as a note of trivia, Led Zeppelin also recorded there for a BBC radio show. Uh, And it's it's no longer a a studio. They stopped using it in 1975. But for some reason, uh, this was a really popular song for... A lot of British invasion groups, because the Hollies did a version of it. The Yardbirds, um, with Eric Clapton. Um, the Kinks did a version of it. What do you think? What do you think makes it so so catchy, so popular for for some of the British artists?
1: Oh, well, I well, I think first of all, when you, you what you were mentioning earlier about the the beep, <laughs> the the BBC, is it was the only show in town. It was the only radio station most. Uh, most people could listen to it, you know. Since going back to the Second World War, people would generally sit around in the evening and listen to the BBC. Uh, and while that was happening, port cities like Liverpool would have had this—I don't know—I I suppose the supply of American singles coming over that—that uh, that American or that uh, merchant marines had been had bought over in the States and would be selling them off of the boat or to record stores. And a lot of people, a lot of young British teenagers got into uh, American music that way. Because there wasn't that much, there, there wasn't anything else speaking to them, I don't think. Another point that I, I, I was sort of thinking to go in with your context, I think a huge part of it is the end of conscription. Before that, my father was seven years older than John Lennon. My mom was two years older than John Lennon. But conscription in the UK ended August 1st, 1939. So a year later, or a year or so later, both Ringo and if it had ended a year or so later, both Ringo and John Lennon are both conscripted. And, you know, so this is the first generation of teenagers. That knew teenagers and young people that knew that they weren't going to have to spend, you know, two to four years, either in the the army, merchant marines, air force, etc. My my father did uh, national service in in the air force, um, so it, it is pretty interesting. And I've, I've talked to a couple of my friends whose parents, one of them whose who uh, whose dad was uh, grew up in Liverpool and remembers the Beatles remembers all of going to the cavern club and all that but he he he's just a couple years older like it's 1938 i think he was born and he was conscripted he had to spend a, you know by the time he was 18 he was in cyprus so that that's an interesting context to see it in i think
0: well it 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 probably goes a long way towards explaining uh, a lot of the so-called British invasion bands, as they became known, because uh, yeah, they had the luxury of time to kick around and form a band that, uh, you know, previous generations, just a few years before, uh, wouldn't have had time for. They were in Cyprus, yeah, or, or they were doing, you know, some shitty job in the military. Now, now this song was a big, pretty big hit for Chuck. Uh, yeah, reached number four on Billboard magazine's uh, most played in jukeboxes chart, as well as number eleven yeah. and uh, on another chart, top sellers in stores. So it was it was a big record in 1956. And you're right, it would have made its way to Liverpool, but probably by virtue of uh, merchant seamen. Yep. Definitely. I would. So the, that's how it would have gotten into the Beatles universe. And uh, they later made it a part of their, their live stage act. Uh, so we go on to cut number two, the second one you've selected. And I'm, I'm doing these in the order in which they appear on the album. And this one is Baby, It's You.
1: sha la 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 It's not the way you smile The touch of my heart la 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 it's not the way you kiss that tears me apart. Well, I, I absolutely love this song. Um, you know, often of please, please me originally. I, I, I just last night heard the original by the Shirelles. Is that how you pronounce that? Yes. Um. Yeah. I. I, I suppose it's one of the first Beatles songs. I heard, but I think I I heard it on the uh, American. I think it was a Twist and Shout record. You know how the 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 uh, releases in the states were a lot different. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: they, were, they were very, up until up until Pepper, uh, they were yeah. all sort of Frankensteined. Um, yeah. you know, if, if you take a couple of tracks, hold a couple of tracks back, but yeah. So this was the 10th uh, the song that was recorded during the Beatles marathon on uh, the 11th of February 1963 session uh, when they recorded the bulk of their debut album, Please Please Me. And as you mentioned, Alan, uh, originally re- recorded by the Shirelles, whose song Boys was also covered by the Beatles. Uh, The music written by the great Burt Bacharach, with lyrics by Luther Dixon, credited as Barney Williams, uh, and Mac David, not to be confused with his brother Hal David, uh, the more famous songwriting partner of Bacharach. Big part of the Beatles' live set from 61 through to 63, and they used the Shirelles' vocal arrangement for the song.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sha-la-la-la-la-la-la.
0: The live version you've selected on Live at the BBC, uh, actually, they were, I guess, so happy with it when they pulled it out of the archives. It was released as a single, to come out oh, with really? the live at the BBC album, yeah, in in both the UK and the US, it was their first single in in nearly a decade. Uh, but
1: they they chose this track uh, to come out. Pretty amazing too. When you just, again, when you just sort of think about how how good they were live, to, to all of it, it's it's flawless. Well, it, th- this one
0: was recorded for an episode of Pop Go the Beatles. Yeah. Uh at the BBC Paris studio in London. Uh, that studio as a note of trivia was in the basement of a building at 12 Regent Street in London. Uh the BBC let their lease run out there in 1995, so no longer is it a studio, but the Beatles were there a lot. Uh recorded 12 BBC radio programs between November 62 and july of 64 bit of a different ending on this one than what you get on the album version what else grabs you about this song um
1: i I suppose it's the uh the uh, impeccable harmonies that's hard to find in a band I've, i've sort of tried it myself a few times of getting together enough strong singers that you can pull that off especially if you're you know Having a few beers along the way, it's some <laughs> <kind> of, <laughs> I've been guilty of that myself, yeah. so uh, the, the, the strong singing, uh, I will always be a huge um, uh, defender of Ringo, I think Ringo, to me, he's my all-time favorite drummer, uh, I could go on for hours about the beat, yeah the musicianship again
0: well i want to touch on the, your your point about uh about the harmonies um on an earlier episode of this podcast had uh, jim cuddy on uh oh, from wrote, yeah, yeah. and and he he said there is not a group out there now anywhere that at some point does not mimic beatles harmonies and answer answer vocals uh is everybody does it uh, was that your experience as a as a player?
1: Oh, uh definitely, but I and it, it, as much as I absolutely adore and love the Beatles, I think they were very heavily influenced by Motown. On there's there's a lot of call and answer in Motown too, you know. You know, and I, I again, that's part of why I picked this group of songs because you know, I I and I suppose from looking at volume two set list, I suppose there's more uh Motown to pick from on that. But I'm I'm a huge Motown fan too. So um it's sort of like the the uh British uh white working class version of Motown. <laughs> <Yeah>. Fair enough. <laughs> and, fair enough. And and they did they did change it for sure. Uh
0: so cut number three that uh, you have chosen is another cover and the debut single of the great Elvis Presley, That's Alright Mama.
1: Well, that's alright, mama. That's alright with you. Yeah, that's alright, oh mama. Any way you do. That's alright. That's alright. You have to pick, you have to choose an Elvis song. And um, I picked that one entirely because uh, when I was 18, 19, uh, I was attempting to, to busk to pay my rent with my friend Mitch. And that's a tune that we used to do quite regularly. <laughs> he sang it. I didn't, you know, he was a much better singer than I was. So. <laughs> He sang it but I always I always love the vibe of it but I also love the the Alvis vibe of it I also love the Arthur Crudup vibe of it so um now yeah. I, I don't know that I've heard
0: the Arthur crudup
1: version how, how, how does it differ well it's just slower and it's acoustic you know it's just that you know I don't I don't want to mimic them because <laughs> I don't sound bad but uh but it's just a, it's a little more forlorn sounding well, it, you know? it,
0: it was famously Elvis's debut single uh, and uh, Arthur Big Boy cried up was was it was his song. Presley's version was recorded on uh, 5 July 1954 and released in Memphis by Sun Records in July of 1954. Rated one of the, the 500 greatest songs of all time. Uh, the Beatles version on this album. Uh, was recorded for Pop Go the Beatles on the second of July, nineteen sixty-three, at Maida Vale Studios in London, uh, and it went unreleased until nineteen ninety-four, when this album came out. Uh, it just went out on the show, and then came out on this record.
1: I I knew they did it because uh, you were earlier. Earlier, you were speaking of um, about the bootlegs. Uh, my my friend Mitch, who I bust with uh, doing that, Alright Mama. He had. He had a ton of Beatles bootlegs, and he had that's all right, Mama, on a bootleg. Um, now, now, the Beatles had performed, they
0: loved Elvis Presley. I mean, John yep. Lennon famously said, no Elvis, no Beatles. Yep. Uh, yep. And, and they recorded, or performed rather, about 30 of his songs in their early years, but only three were officially put down to tape. I'm gonna sit right down and cry over you. I forgot to remember to forget, and that's all right, Mama. Yeah. And they all show up on live at the BBC. McCartney later recorded "That's All Right, Mama" for yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah the 1987 uh, the the the, uh, the Russian, you know, it supposedly was just gonna get released in Russia, but it got released everywhere. Um, and from here's from here's what he says from the here's what's said in the liner notes of that record about this song. Uh, He says, uh, Paul sings Presley. Uh, The two songs from the birth of the legend when Elvis was signed to Memphis-based Sun Records, owner-producer Sam Phillips had insisted that if he could discover a white man with a Negro feel, he'd become a millionaire. And he felt that uh, in 19-year-old Elvis Presley, he'd found that person. In Paul's one-take sessions, which is what he did for this Russian album, uh, much in common with how Phillips initially recorded Elvis live in the studio, and as such... This track, much closer to faithfully recreating the atmosphere synonymous with the legendary sun sound rather than concentrating on merely duplicating the sound and nothing else.
1: And I love those those records, too. I love the sound of... I mean, it's the same thing with... Um, I, I think, another, to, to speak to, again, why I chose this record, I love the sound of a band playing in a room. It just... If you if they're good players and it's you've got it uh, miked up properly, it's you just get something else. It's something you hear the air. Now, do you, uh, do you know what I mean? I, well, I, I want to unpack that a little for
0: non musical and non technical people. You you are a, a highly regarded engineer as well, so <laughs> you can speak. Tell me about how you get that sound. Because not every oh. band recorded in a room
1: sounds great. <laughs> well, I, I would lo- I'd I'd love to say that I've done it with my bands, but I, haven't. I don't I think we've uh, not we we the myself and my bandmates have been a little more flawed, to, or too loud or something. But I'm the idea of you know like. For I can speak better about the the please please me sessions etc. Where it's just basically it's there's just a two two drums two mics on the drums one on the kick and one over top then they mic the guitar amps bass amp and then they didn't use headphones in that one they used out of phase speakers. Pointed at the microphone so that when the when the signal got to the the microphone, it canceled itself out. But the singers could hear it. You know, the whole point was to mimic being live. Um, and I, th- I th- again, I think he got that on on Please Please Me. It's just a little more polished than the Beatles uh, live at the BBC. I think. Um, yeah, uh, but you're asking. Yeah, I, 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 it's trickier than 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 you would think to get a the sound of a live band. Uh, everyone has to be willing to to compromise for the, the 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 all over sound. So that that especially for lead guitar players, uh, like I have been at times, it's a, but, but, a challenging thing.
0: But let me ask ask you this: as a as a non technical guy, which I am, can you is 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 less best when you're miking a band for a live recording? And, and, and let me put it into context. Is When I listen to a lot of old jazz records, which I do from the, the late 50s and the early 60s, the golden era of jazz, you listen to a yeah. Bill Evans record uh, yep. or you listen to Kind of Blue. And those were all done live on the floor. Uh, and they sound better, better than a lot of recordings that were done in the 70s and 80s with much better technology. And and, and is it because they didn't use that many mics and they weren't that fussy about it? Like, why is that?
1: I think there is a lot more reliance on the musicianship and uh, as well as... um uh as as well as what I was saying before, sort of an unselfishness. If you if you see a lot of sort of old jazz and old bluegrass, old country recordings, you'll see them crowded around one condenser mic that's on sort of uh you know omnidirectional, and and people will kind of lean in if they're playing a solo and lean out away from it. Um and I think you also get the sense of a communication because we're all making eye contact and and listening to each other where whereas if you're and I, you know I've done this myself if you're you might be playing putting a guitar track down and all you're listening to is uh, the click track or the or the drummer to to sync in um to sink in with to be more mathematically correct but not necessarily uh musical so is that you, making sense
0: it is and and alan when you're so when you're listening to these beatles bbc recordings can you can you hear that they're interacting looking at one another that can, like can you
1: hear that in the music i uh, i either can or i'm imagining it <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I I think I think they were. I think they had such a camaraderie and and uh, and respect for one another that there was. You, you would have to be, you know, if they're crowding around, you know, if, uh, you know, it's a Lennon song, and you got George and Paul on the on the other microphone. They have to communicate because they're only on one microphone. They have to, you know, whose whose voice is louder, whose whose voice is more important for that harmony. You know, there has to be communication. So, yeah, I would say yes. So two of the first three cuts you've chosen are are covers.
0: Uh, No secret that the Beatles were influenced massively by some of the early rock and rollers, Elvis, Chuck Berry, Little Richard. Uh, And they loved their black girl groups, uh, the
1: Shirelles, the
0: Marvelettes. Uh, How about you, influences?
1: Obviously, the Beatles. um, And I would say after that... um, uh, Jimi hendrix i i absolutely love jimmy hendrix especially the band of gypsies album i don't know if you you know that one well but it's uh live again it's a live record live at the fillmore east on new year's eve uh they played four they played four sets two on new year's eve two on new year's day and it's and it's the guys hendrix wanted to play with They're two of his his friends as opposed to the experience so it's uh the guy, um, Billy Cox, who he was in the Airborne with and Buddy Miles, who later on had a soul career as, uh, you know, the, my mind's been going through them changes. <laughs> it's, but it, I, I love, like, speaking of communication, that, that record, I don't know if you know it well at all, but it's uh, the communication on that record is mind boggling. Um, you know Machine Gun is probably my favorite guitar song in 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 history.
0: Uh no your first record just before we jump back into the Beatles Balladesque your first yeah. solo record from 2000 first cut uh, heading out west
1: I'm heading From my vision, out
0: west. Uh, I hear Carl Wallinger, uh, World Party. Uh, also, if you're familiar with him, um, also a huge Beatles aficionado. And are you a, are you a fan? Or are you familiar with his music? And oh, d- of course. D- d-
1: I- i wouldn't call it a um him an influence but i have got to admit he wrote some great songs i i love ship of fools that's i i was I was planning on uh i keep planning on learning it to cover it but then again I I think every time every record I ever hear i go oh I should I should cover that song and then I never do but uh i I think he's fantastic um i i wouldn't call it an influence though the, an interesting thing uh for for you um just to to share with um, Ballad-esque, is I copied the cover of a Replacements record, because Replacements are another huge influence on me. Um, I copied the cover of a Replacements album called Let It Be. And so it's sort of like playing on, I was kind of playing on two things there. I was playing on the Replacements influence and the Beatles influence, and nobody got it. (laughs) So, <laughs> it's i get i maybe I go for too far back in my own brain all the time thinking people oh yeah they're gonna know that but
0: no yeah. well I, I don't know how often you listen to yourself but if you do uh, g- give it a listen and uh, to me <laughs> I, I I listened to it the first time i listened to it i went hi Carl wallinger sounds like Carl wallinger uh <laughs> That's, so i'll um, take that there you go <laughs> yeah. for for what it's worth uh let's go to cut four that you've chosen and this one oh, right. uh, a bit of an obscure tune clip Bella. Tell me about that.
1: Well, I've got a baby I'm Crazy for me I'm Yeah, I've got a baby because i hadn't heard it before i hadn't heard a version of it before um then again and then last night i actually heard the original joda mars i think it's the pronunciation of the band the former bill haley in the comments guys uh but it, i picked it because I, I didn't know it so you know pretty much everything else i, I already knew um so i wanted to kind of pick a tune to go. oh yeah well in this way, I have to listen to it over and over again. So I did. <laughs> There's not much more to add.
0: <laughs> well, it's an obscure one. I, I did some research on it. Uh, it well, first of all, it's an it's an early uh, it's an early version of Paul McCartney doing Little Richard. I mean, yes. so that's you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. composed by a guy named Frank Pingatore, or Pingatore. and I could find. No other information about the guy. <laughs> uh, you know, he wrote this song, uh, and yes, it was recorded by the Jada Mars. Uh, it was their fifth U.S. single, released in November of 56. Was not a chart success, but somehow, I guess, a copy must have found its way into the Beatles' hands.
1: That's... Uh, probably from the Merchant Marines. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, that's yeah. all I can think of. Um, they, they, they were... They were um... It says, it says on the record there are refugees, the Jotamars were refugees from Bill Haley and the Comets. I thought that was a really interesting um, way of saying that they, they kicked them out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, guy, the guys were Joey Ambrose,
0: Dick Bocelli, and Marshall Lytle, or Little. And yeah. the, the, uh, the name is uh, an amalgam of their first names. Um, yeah this, yeah so the the jodimers um and it was Mac- again mccartney doing little richard uh, the version on the album was recorded on july 2nd 1963 at the bbc's made of Adel studios for an episode of pop go the beatles I would just like to take a moment here to ask a favor of you. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you consider making a donation to support the production costs of the podcast? Just head to the website RomyCast.com and click on the Support the Walrus button. I'll give you a shout-out in the next episode. You might also navigate to the page Hire Paul. Ever thought of a promotional podcast for your next album release, tour, book, art exhibition? If you have, then I am your guy. I'm an experienced podcast producer who loves the arts and will work with you to produce a podcast that will showcase your talent. If you're interested you can get in touch via the website and we'll go from there also at the website you can find every episode of the walrus was paul podcast series the best way to not miss an episode is to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and you'll be notified whenever a new episode drops so let's uh, move on now to the next cut on our tour of the Beatles live at the BBC and it's another cover version Smokey Robinson's 1962 top 10 hit for the Miracles as covered by the Beatles you really got a hold on me
1: I don't like As I said earlier, I'm a massive Motown fan and a massive Smokey Robinson fan. So, yes, that's, uh, I, and of course, I first heard it on with the Beatles, which is a fantastic record. And I was going to do, we weren't really sure. I was, when you, when you were asking me to, to pick records, I kind of, I just found, Um, I forgot that I had uh, the, the live at the BBC record. I was just flipping through my vinyl one day and I found it, I thought, oh, I should do that one. Right. But um great version. And uh yeah, that that's really all there. I love again, I love Motown. So uh
0: Smokey Robinson, who wrote it, uh apparently loved the cover, loved the cover version, uh that the the Beatles did it on four occasions for BBC Radio in 1963. And one of these, the one from July 30th, is included in this BBC collection. Uh, They also did it in a live version was recorded in stockholm and released on the anthology anthology right. one uh and, right. and uh, they also fiddled around with it uh, uh, as we record this um lots to talk about let it be and the get back sessions they yeah. uh, they fiddled around with it uh, when they were jamming uh recording the the let it be documentary and album um but uh yeah i mean it was a big, big hit for the Miracles, written by Smokey Robinson. Uh, it was one of the Miracles, is one of the Miracles' most covered tunes, million-selling song, Grammy Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, brilliant, brilliant song. And uh, you, you've got John Lennon on lead, Harrison and McCartney, in on close harmony vocals. Um, in, like just a great performance for me. And then Ringo holding it down. Yes, always, 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 and, and, always. always. Uh, and we'll come to Ringo a little bit later on because I've, I've, I yeah. know you're, you're champing at the bit to talk about Ringo. I,
1: I did notice one thing when I was going through the list last night. I didn't pick any Harrison songs and it was this wasn't this wasn't intentional. I, I it doesn't mean that I don't love George Harrison. I do. <laughs> but in the early days of the Beatles, it was very much uh, Paul and John.
0: Well, this this can get you down a rabbit hole of, I mean, for me, he really came into his own as a songwriter near the end of The Beatles. Very much so, yeah. Uh, And and, and I think George Martin gets a, and and Harrison, I I assume they patched it up before they both died. Uh, I hope they did. But Harrison, at one point, accounts i've read held a bit of animosity towards george martin because he didn't feel that his songs were were taken as seriously Were given a bit of short shrift by martin but when when you look at it so you say okay well it's it's 1967 uh and the beatles lennon and mccartney are coming in with uh a day in the life uh, Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields. I am the Walrus. Am the Walrus. He's coming yeah. in with "It's Only a Northern Song," "It's All Too Much," uh, and "Within You, Without You," which are they're good songs, but yeah. they're not in the same league as those songs I just mentioned.
1: No, I I, I, I would agree. Uh, I I also I would say you know Taxman's a great song, um, and I think he did uh, by the White Album was definitely holding its own. With those guys, uh, I just his, the, the the problem for George is that he's basically dealing with arguably the best songwriting uh, pair in history. I I I would say, <laughs> I'm I'm sure there's a lot of people that would disagree with me. I've I've, I've had massive uh, uh, alcohol fueled <laughs> arguments about the Beatles in the past. Even even today, I posted something on Facebook about. Uh, I was wearing a that that picture I sent you from a few years ago where I was wearing a Beatles suit, <laughs> which I could never fit into now. Um, uh, there's a few people posted, Oh, they're just a boy band. No, the, you know what? They've no. No, the, that's silly. But yes. Um I I think Harrison been a bit younger too. Took a little longer to come into his zone, and as anyone who's the, when you're three years younger than the you're or than than Lennon anyway, uh, at the time when the band started, those dynamics are very difficult to to change. Well, let's go to cut six of the songs you've
0: chosen, and this is one of my favorite Beatles songs, "A Hard Day's Night."
1: It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night, I should be sleeping like a love. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do to make me feel alright. The harmonies, the the playing, it's it's fantastic. And it's that version... uh, on the BBC it's it's flawless. Mm. Uh, it was recorded for a
0: show called Top Gear, not to be confused with the later uh, automotive uh, show. Uh, recorded on July fourteenth, nineteen sixty four, just a week after the movie had been released in the UK. So they were doing the show to promote the new movie. Uh, here's what's pretty cool that I like about this version: is they they replicate that opening guitar chord, yeah, very nicely. <laughs> very nicely the, the mystery chord uh, now where well, where do you come now I can I've got music stuff here which you'll understand you know more so than me but I I don't know if you want to grab one of those guitars and give it a try oh, yeah, not, but, yeah. but it, so it's the analysis of the chord has been debated it's been described as a G7 add9 sus4 uh, a G7 sus4 or a G11 sus4 uh, the exact chord, According to George Harrison, okay, he was he was doing an online chat on February the 15th, 2001, and he was asked, Mr. Harrison, what is the opening chord you use for a hard day's night? He says, it's an F with a G on top. So an F add nine. That is let's, the chord.
1: Let's see if that's G on top. <laughs> Can you hear that? Yeah, yeah. Is that what it's talking about? Yeah, there we go, yeah.
0: You see, you, a- now, now so then to get it on the album, yep. What what it's all about is you have Harrison playing the F-Ad 9 in the first yeah. position on a Rickenbacker 360 12-string.
1: I'll just grab the 12-string, then shall I? I think it's in tune, might not be. So, it's this is a fake Rickenbacker.
0: <laughs> hey, you can, can you hear it,
1: yeah. But then to
0: go with it, to give you that chord, you have an F. John Lennon played an F add nine in the first position on his Gibson J one hundred and sixty e six string acoustic.
1: Okay, you're gonna laugh. You're gonna love this. this is sec, okay? <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just, I'll just order up the
1: guitars. <laughs> it's fake, though. It's uh, I don't know if he, it says Tokai. Okay. It's a Japanese copy, but it's uh, if it's the tune? Yeah. Sorta anyway. Almost, yeah. So you have those those two chords together.
0: Then McCartney played. Yeah. He played a high D on the D string, twelfth fret on his Hofner bass. Okay. Don't have a Hofner. Don't bass have a Hofner bass. <laughs> Uh, and then George Martin on a on a Steinway grand played right. Okay, so so there's the bass chord. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then George Martin on his Steinway grand played D two G two D three. So <laughs> he, he, he when we, yeah, you, yeah You don't have the Steinway no. grand sitting there.
1: No. <laughs> this room is uh, about. Uh, maybe seven feet wide <laughs> so yeah, <I> don't <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty cool oh, six uh, feet
0: wide yeah yeah, yeah. um so it, it, and then ringo had a little subtle snare drum uh and ride cymbal so in all of that together gives it that
1: mystery chord sound yeah 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 uh, that, that's that's yeah, the mist, the the great. I, I've sat around again of uh, many uh, alcohol fueled debates about that over yeah, the years. Yeah.
0: Now, <laughs> now the cool thing about the the worst thing actually about this version on the album is that uh, and almost all of these the cuts on live at the BBC are in fact live with no overdubs. However, this is an exception. There was a, an obvious if you listen to it a drop in of the combined. Harrison guitar and George Martin piano solo uh, that was Harrison on his Rickenbacker 12 string and okay. he, uh, Martin doubled them up on the piano on this is on the actual hard days night cut yeah yeah
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: but George Martin wasn't around to do this show so there was no piano uh, yeah. so so they dropped in the solo from the studio recording <laughs> and and it's just an absolutely horrible edit which yeah, you, can, yeah, yeah. you can hear yeah. it if you listen to
1: it. But when I get on to you, I find the things that you do to make me feel okay.
0: producers of the show, a guy named Bernie Andrews says, uh, they were expecting Martin to arrive, but he never made it. So... (laughs) (laughs) got caught in in traffic oh man Uh, so now I want to ask you Alan it wasn't exactly a hard day's night uh, but you managed a a little movie magic yourself with a role in a movie (laughs) called uh, Brain Candy yeah Uh, yeah, yeah. there's a Canadian uh, for those of you listening in the UK there's a great Canadian comedy troupe called Kids in the Hall Uh, take a look for their stuff on YouTube they're very funny Uh, but you were in their movie called Brain Candy in the fiction band, how did this all your, your movie stardom come about?
1: <laughs> it was a very short-lived film career uh, but, oh, they, were, they were just, they were fa- uh, fans of the band Like the, um, I, I suppose when we first put out uh, when the Morgan Fields put out Scribblehead uh, there was a show, I remember it clearly at the Rivoli where uh, I didn't have a TV at the time the other guys in the band did And we're, this is during one of the many periods of my career where nobody came out to see me play. (laughs) So it was a very, it was a very empty Rivoli on a Wednesday night or whatever. And this guy comes walking in and stands right in front of me, short little dude. So this guy comes, uh, walking to the very front of the empty Rivoli. I don't know if you've ever been at the Rivoli when it's empty, but it's uh, like playing every other place. It's <laughs> empty. It's, I've, and I've got lots of experience with that. <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's humiliating. But this guy, weird-looking short dude, comes walking up to the front of the stage, and I realize he's singing along with all the songs. And he's he's hammered. There's snot coming out of his nose. It's like... And then I can feel my band, speaking of being able to sense a band, I can feel my band tensing up. I'm just going, guys, you know, we've played Northern Ontario. How is this (laughs) stressful? (laughs) And uh, after the show, uh, as we're walking off, the, uh, the drummer and the bass player, Jay and Toby, said to each other, that's a guy from Kids in the Hall. That's Bruce. And... He sticks his head in and goes, You guys are great, he leaves. And that was it. And then the next thing that came out of that was we we started to work on a video where I asked him, I got his phone number and we discussed uh, a video idea, but he was too too busy with uh kids in the hall. And then when they came for our, um to do uh to do brain candy, they needed uh a band that looked and this is a direct quote. <laughs> I was substantially skinnier back then. I'll, I'll say I'll, I'll, I must admit. Uh, they said they wanted a band that looked like a bunch a bunch of junkies, but weren't. So <laughs> <laughs> they they asked uh, Jay and I, and then I think the two other the two other guys were from Technicolor Raincoats, um, who were not the Toronto. Uh, Banned from that period, Uh, so that's how I got the. That's how we got the part. uh, Was looking like junkies, (laughs) but but you know, being responsible enough to show up at you know when it was time to film it. So we we did that in a uh, the power plant. I think it was a disused power plant at the end of Cherry Street. Oh yeah, they made it look. You yes. made it look like a, a crazy rock bar. I don't know if you see the clips. From, yeah. I, yes, I, I have, wish yeah. I played <laughs> I wish I played clubs like that. <laughs> if I did it would have been empty. <laughs> An empty power plant. <laughs> but, but it was uh yeah, it was pretty uh it was a pretty interesting experience. There were very long hours. It was actually—I—I I, I lied on the website. It was actually during uh, we were touring the album "Joy" at the time, and which was an absolute comedy of errors. We had a. Uh, uh, do you remember I, earlier we were talking about some um, picking songs as singles? Uh, for our la- especially for our last record, the, the, the record company picked two songs at and we argued about it all the time. It's like, no, no, no. These, these are the ones you gotta pick. So there's a, a a a radio station in Windsor that picked a song called Repress as a single to play as as a single. It wasn't one that we that the record company had picked, but they liked this. So they were playing this song. And uh we were getting, I think, something like thirty-six spins a week, or something. It was in heavy rotation. I think that's called heavy rotation. It might be light or medium rotation, but we were, we were getting played a lot and getting a lot of interest from Windsor, Detroit area. So this club in Detroit says, "Great, we're going to have you headline this uh, big show um, in in our we set up this parking lot because it's going to be too big for the for the." Before, I think you know where this is going. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to set up this big show and you guys can come down and, you know, be thousands of people there. So, you know, we'd, we'd been shooting kids in the hall uh, for 12 hours. We hopped in the, the, the van and drove down to, to Windsor or to Detroit, go to the show. There's this giant, the size of a football field. Parking lot with like a beer garden and porta potties all over the place. And we're thinking, wow, this is just going to be great. Only they advertised the wrong day. So they, it was a Friday and they advertised for the Saturday. <laughs> And there, were, so uh, I guess Saturday must have been awesome. But uh, oh, we were, no. <laughs> it was the only, the only thing, like the only thing <laughs> interesting. Well, first of all, our we we were at that point. We also had an American record deal. The guy uh, from the from the uh, uh, American label showed up, and he's completely fucked out of his mind on cocaine, and just he insists on introducing us and our label mates to Gandarvis, and he he was just <laughs> I, I can't possibly do it justice without doing sort of physical comedy and so while we're playing that he 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 did this introduction my great friends the morgan fields and he just did this strange little beeline off stage which because we're pricks we made a Paused for a while <laughs> to milk the <laughs> silence. <laughs> oh. well, hung them out to dry a bit, we did. Um, and then we're playing. The only people watching us are the, I think, the Killjoys and the Gandharvas. <laughs> and there's this woman in front of right in front of me, with her boyfriend, right in front of me on stage. Flashing her boobs at me, then that—that was that was that was it, <laughs> <laughs> that, and that, thats actually metaphorical of my whole career. <laughs> <I think>. <laughs> uh. <laughs>
0: All right, so with uh, begrudgingly, I'll get back to the Beatles album here because those are those are great stories. Uh, let's get to cut number seven of the uh, of the fourteen that you selected. And uh, apropos of the story you just told, so how come no one loves me? <laughs> they
1: say that everyone wants someone. Because uh, again, I wanted to show off their uh, their vocal dexterity, um, and again, uh, as I said off the top, the, how influenced they were by popular music in the states at the time. That that's that's really it. I also didn't know again. Actually, that's another tune that I didn't know they covered. So.
0: Well, it was originally recorded by the the great Everly Brothers uh, on their fourth album, A Date with the Everly Brothers from 1960, and... Lennon and McCartney absolutely idolized the Everly brothers. Uh, They were both unashamedly Everly fans. And a lovely thing that I dug up that Paul McCartney wrote when uh, Phil Everly died back in January of 2014. He wrote, Phil was one of my great heroes. With his brother Don, they were one of the major influences on the Beatles. When John and I first started to write songs, I was Phil and he was Don. And years later, when I finally met Phil, I was completely starstruck and at the same time extremely impressed by his humility and gentleness of soul. I will always love him for giving me some of the sweetest musical memories of my life. Uh, and uh, yeah, they they loved those tight Everly Brothers-like harmonies.
1: That was, you know, it's quite a mix too of of the of the popular music that they were. American music that they're influenced by it it, I mean it really does do the whole gamut of you know Chuck Berry Motown and then the Everly Brothers are completely for a completely different world especially at the time in the states with segregation still a thing and black radio and white radio.
0: No, very, yeah. very much so. Now, now on this, it sounds when I listen to it, it sounds like Harrison's in there as well. It sounds like a three-part harmony to me, but maybe that's maybe I'm not hearing it correctly. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, that, yeah, that, <laughs> that's uh, uh, um. and and just as as a bit of trivia, uh, McCartney, remember, uh, you know, his, his he loved the Everly Brothers. He wrote a track for them uh, on the wings of a oh. nightingale. Uh, oh, okay, which was the first track on their 1984 album, uh, EB84. That was their first record after an 11-year break. So it was a bit of a comeback right. record. And he yeah. wrote a song called On the Wings of a Nightingale, which is a lovely song. Uh, Paul even played guitar on the recording, and it reached number 50 in the Billboard Hot 100 and bopped around in the chart for a few months. So we are going to uh, take a pause here as we are halfway through our tour of the Beatles live at the BBC. Logical place to take a break. Seven tracks in. We have seven to go. Uh, Do keep your eyes out for the second part of our look at the album. We'll be highlighting another seven tracks, including I Feel Fine, Ticket to Ride, and Love Me Do. You can get the next episode the moment it drops by subscribing to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, what do you think about The Beatles live at the BBC? What are your thoughts on our thoughts? I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the podcast episode page at the website romicast.com. And you can also interact on Twitter or Instagram. The handle is Romanuk Paul. Romanuk Paul. There is also a Facebook page. Do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. I usually get back to people who interact via social media. So any of those channels will do. And also be sure to visit our guest Alan Piggins at his website, alanpiggins.com. Just a reminder, Alan is spelled A-L-U-N, alanpiggins.com. Lots of information there about Alan, his music, his former band, the Morgan Fields, as well as info on his upcoming new record. It is all there at alanpiggins.com. So coming up on the next episode, part two of our exploration of the Beatles live at the BBC. And a, a few more great stories from songwriter and musician Alan Piggins. That's next time on The Walrus Was Paul. Talk to you then.
1: ever get tired of it.